This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and my lotto rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Hell, March 13, 1919. Esteemed mortal. They've never caught me, and they never will. They've never seen me. For I'm invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I'm not a human being. <laughs> but a spirit and a demon from hottest hell. I'm what your lineage and your foolish police call the Axe Man. <laughs> You're alone in the house, in bed, drifting off to sleep. Wait, was that a sound? You stop and listen. No, it's nothing. And your eyes close, and your breathing slows. But... But what? There's a killer on the loose, with an axe. And someone in the city won't wake up tomorrow. The doors are locked, you're safe in bed. But you're not safe. Because no one is safe. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, where we delve into the mystery of unconventional cold cases and mysterious deaths. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're investigating the sensational case of the Axeman of New Orleans. A serial killer terrorizing the Crescent City. If you wish to subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or you can always go to our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. Over the course of this series, we'll be exploring true cold cases in depth. What happened, the investigation, and who might have done it. You'll want to follow every minute so you don't miss a single twist or turn. Again, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, so you can track each case. 
or go to our website, parcast.com, or visit our Facebook page to join in the discussion. That's Parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T. Today, the Axeman of New Orleans, a vicious and cold-blooded killer who strikes without warning in the dead of the night. Who's leaving a trail of broken bodies and broken lives in his wake. Who has the entire city terrified. And who's still on the loose. It's 1919. World War I is over. Prohibition is still a year away. Booze, southern food, and sweet, sweet jazz. New Orleans jazz was still an infant, a fledgling combination of big brass band, French quadrille, ragtime, and blues. But it had already made a mark on the city. New Orleans was a city of immigrants, people from all over the world in the same neighborhoods. Like any city composed of immigrants, there was racism, hate crimes, and mafiosos taking advantage of people to offer protection. Between 1880 and 1920, a great migration of Italians settled in New Orleans, and many worked as grocers. It should be a time of joy and happiness. But not in New Orleans, home to nearly 350,000 people. Things are uneasy in the Big Easy. Last fall, an oil tanker arrived at the port of New Orleans. Aboard were five crew members sick with the flu. It was the great pandemic of 1918. And for 12 weeks, the city was the epicenter of a lethal influenza outbreak. Worldwide, millions died. And thousands here in New Orleans. But even with the end of the outbreak, there is another killer striking relentlessly at the heart of the city. And this is an epidemic that medicine cannot solve. The Axeman of New Orleans. Since last year, at least a dozen people have been attacked, with at least six victims hacked to death usually with an axe. So that's how he got his name, the Axeman. In most cases, he slipped in through the back door, either by breaking in or carving out a wooden panel while the residents were asleep. So they couldn't see it coming. And the crimes weren't robberies. Because items weren't missing from the victims' homes. But whatever the motive, people are still rattled. Because when you're dead, you're dead. To this point, the majority of the victims have been Italian-Americans. Is the Axeman racially motivated? Anti-immigrant? We're not sure. There's even been speculation that this killing spree is tied to the Mafia, despite the lack of evidence of that. When you're afraid, you'll cling to any theory that makes you feel safer. I'm not tied to the Mafia, so I'm okay. But you might not be okay. Ask the dozen victims who thought that they were okay. The Axeman often attacks men and women in their bed. Which has led to the speculation that the killings are related to sex. It's been hypothesized that he's searching for female victims, and he only deals with the men if they obstruct his attempt to kill women. Which would explain the cases where a woman in the household was murdered, but not the man. There are reports of similar murders taking place as early as 1911, and as far west as Texas. But for now, investigators are concentrating on the ones that began last May, here in Louisiana's biggest city. The earlier killings may or may not be related. As far as the people of New Orleans are concerned, this has been going on for 17 months. Which is a long time to be living in fear. And this hasn't been like other serial killings, where victims can pile up for years before investigators realize it is the work of a single perpetrator. There's been attention and coverage right from the beginning. Extra, extra, Axeman strikes again. And the Axeman himself sent a chilling letter taunting the police and threatening to kill more innocent people. It was postmarked from hell. Residents are scared. And the police are under the gun. Who's in danger? Who is safe? When is the next attack coming? 
And who's the target? What we do know is this. The Axeman hasn't been caught yet, and no one knows his identity. Or her identity. Or its identity. What do you mean, its identity? What if the Axeman isn't even human? Wait, well, of course he's human. Well, that's not what he claims. In his letter to the newspaper, the Axeman says he's invisible. He's a spirit, a demon. But we don't actually believe that, right? Right? I'm just saying, if the Axeman were invisible, it would explain why he, or it, hasn't been caught. I think we need to go back and sort out the facts. How did we get here? It all starts in May of 1918. On the night of May 22nd, 1918, Joseph and Catherine Maggio lay asleep at their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets, where they conducted a barroom and grocery. Honey, did you hear that? What? What did you hear? Joseph! What the hell? Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Both of the Maggios had their throats slashed by a straight razor. Then their heads were bashed in with an axe. A razor and an axe? Police speculate that the axe might have been to cover up the real cause of death. So they were killed. Joseph actually survived the attack, but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers Jake and Andrew. His wife Catherine was not so lucky. She was dead before the brothers arrived. Making Catherine Maggio the first victim of the axe man. Law enforcement found the bloody clothes of the murderer at the scene. You may be thinking, wow, so much evidence. CSI would have no problem solving this. But let me remind you, this was 1918, long before DNA analysis was invented. Apparently, the perpetrator had changed into clean clothes before leaving. That seemed unusual, that he would be so comfortable at the crime scene to get undressed and change. Police quickly ruled out robbery as a motive because there was money, along with other valuables, left in plain sight by the intruder. So what was the motive? Personal grudge, a thrill kill. At this point, we can only speculate. And what about clues? Although nothing was found on the premises, later the police discovered a bloody razor on the lawn of a neighboring property. The murder weapon. Not only the murder weapon, but the razor belonged to Joseph Maggio's brother, Andrew, who worked at a barbershop. Aha! Suspect. A prime suspect. Andrew Maggio lived next door to his brother. He was one of the ones who discovered the victims. He might have had a personal motive. And he might have wanted to cover up that the razor was used in the attack by disfiguring the bodies with the axe. There was another thing. One of Andrew's employees, Esteban Torres, told police that Andrew Maggio had removed the razor from the shop two days prior to the murder, saying he wanted to have a nick honed from the blade. Very suspicious. The police thought so, too. 
so they took in Andrew for questioning. So let's go over this again, Andrew. On the night of the murder. I saw a strange man lurking outside. Right. A strange man. Can you describe him? Not really. It was dark. And I was on my way out. To the bar, you said? And what time would you say you got home? I already told you. I don't remember. I had been drinking heavily and I was not in good shape. Why'd you end up going to your brother's house? Because I heard noises. Groaning noises. And what I have found... Oh, poor Joseph and Catherine. God rest their soul. Let's go back to the noises. Your brother is there, fighting for his life, making all the noise he can, and it takes you two hours to get up and go next door. I already told you I was drunk, passed out. Well, that's convenient. I got my notice that I was shipping out for the war. You'd be out drinking too. What's also very convenient, you brought a razor home from the barbershop. I wanted to fix the blade. I can't believe you think I was involved. I loved my brother. So how exactly did your razor end up being used as the murder weapon? I don't know. Isn't it bad enough I lost my brother and his wife? And then to be accused of something so awful. I didn't kill them. I didn't kill them. After a few days in custody, Andrew was released by investigators, unable to break down his statement or find further evidence of his involvement in his brother's death. There was still his account of that unknown man lurking nearby. Which seems important in retrospect, as further crimes were committed by an intruder, but at that time was probably not so significant. However, there was another possible clue. About a block away from the murder scene, police found a cryptic message written in childish handwriting on the sidewalk. Mrs. Maggio will sit up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony. Okay. Mrs. Maggio is Catherine, but who's Mrs. Tony? Good question. The police searched their records for a Mrs. Tony, though Tony was spelled T-O-N-E-Y, as in something relating to musical tones or sound. Harkening back to the Axeman's obsession with jazz, a one Tony Chiambra and his wife had been murdered in 1911, in their beds, with an axe. They were Italian. How many people in New Orleans are getting murdered by an axe? Not a lot in the years between 1911 and 1918, but seven years earlier, in 1911, there had been a series of gruesome axe murders in Louisiana, as many as 16. Tony Chiambra was the last victim. So, the perpetrator was calling back to the previous axe murders? Maybe. Maybe it was the same killer. Maybe it was a new copycat killer. That's a lot of maybes. One thing there was no maybe about. Two people were dead. And the Axeman's reign of terror was just beginning. On the morning of June 28, 1918, a month after the Maggio murders. Louis, what's that at the door, sweetheart? Calm down, Annie. I'm sure it's just Ricky Santoni coming by to haggle for a discount at the store. Lazy piece of... Lewis, an axe! Ah! A bread delivery man named John Zanka was making a routine delivery to a small grocery store on Dorginois and Harp Streets. So once again, a grocery store. A grocery store owned by an immigrant. And once again, an immigrant. And this immigrant was named Louis Bessemer. 
Mr. Bessemer? Hello? He found the front doors locked, which was highly unusual because Bessemer always opened his store on time. Concerned, the delivery man went around the rear of the store where he knew the Bessemers lived and knocked on the back door. Mr. Bessemer! Hello, Mr. Bessemer! Louis Bessemer finally answered the door, face uh, covered in uh, blood. Mr. Bessemer, are you okay? I was attacked. What happened? Uh, Upstairs? Uh, the delivery man rushed to the bedroom, where he found bloody footprints leading out of the room. He also found Bessemer's presumed wife on the bed, covered with a blood-soaked sheet. Wait, what do you mean presumed wife? We'll get to that. As with the Maggio attacks, investigators found a wood panel had been chiseled out of the back door. The Axeman's M.O. And they also found a small, bloody axe in the bathroom. So the Axeman had struck again. Not so fast. The axe in the bathroom actually belonged to Louis Bessemer. Thinking he might be involved in the attack, he was detained by police. Meanwhile, the wife. Incredibly, she was still alive and she was rushed to the hospital with a deep wound above her left ear. At the hospital, she regained consciousness and was able to make a statement to police. Mrs. Bessemer, are you okay to talk? Yes. Can you tell us what happened? It was awful. I was attacked by a mulatto. A mulatto? A term used to describe a person with one white parent and one black parent. As a result, a black man, Louis Ubicon, was arrested the next day. Who is Louis Ubicon? He was a handyman who had worked in Bessemer's store a week before the attacks. And what else connected him to the crime? Nothing. Did Mrs. Bessemer identify him as the perpetrator? Nope. But she saw the attacker. Presumably. So it wasn't Ubicon? No. And he was soon released. But the quick arrest on scant evidence shows how much pressure was on the police to close the case. Because a depraved criminal was still out there. Then the investigators caught a break. Mrs. Bessemer changed her tune with a shocking admission. Mrs. Bessemer, there's something else you want to tell us? I know who's responsible for this crime. It was Lewis. He did this. Your husband? Mr. Bessemer? Yes. He attacked me. Then came another bombshell. Mrs. Bessemer wasn't even Mrs. Bessemer. I have another confession about Lewis. I'm not his wife. He's married to another woman. Ah, so that's why you said presumed wife. And she was accusing her lover of trying to kill her. Still, there was one final revelation. Tell us, why did Mr. Bessemer attack you? I think he's a German spy. That's right. She claimed Lewis Bessemer was a German spy. As if the attempted murder wasn't sensational enough, now there was a layer of international intrigue on top. What did the police do? The police were already investigating Bessemer after suspicious letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were found in a trunk he owned. And this was the damning conviction they needed. With Louis Bessemer now behind bars, New Orleans could rest easy. Except even with this suspect in custody, the killing wouldn't stop. Police had arrested Louis Bessemer for the brutal second Axeman attack, which took place in New Orleans on June 28, 1918. Because 
he had been implicated by the presumed wife. Mm, let's just call her the mistress. And this woman, Anna Harriet Lowe, known as Harriet, also said Bessemer was a German spy. Well, which was a big deal because we were fighting the Germans then during World War I. Newspaper accounts at the time reported that secret spy papers had been found in the home, although there is no evidence this was true. You can never trust the media. This was the golden age of newspapers, and they had a field day. Newspapers were the TMZ of that time. The entire case turned into a media circus. After Lewis finally admitted that Harriet was not his real wife, and they had been living together, his real wife returned from Cincinnati. And Lewis was acting strangely. Well, devil's advocate. The entire city just found out he was cheating on his wife, and he had nearly been killed by a man with an axe. How was he supposed to act? True, but police became more suspicious when he asked that he be allowed to investigate the case on his own. Like OJ trying to find the real killers. That's not to say there weren't major problems with the state's case against Louis Bessemer. A neighbor claimed that both Louis and Harriet were crazed drug addicts. Indeed, opiates were found in the bedroom and police were already discounting most of what Harriet told them because of her adult state. But they were still relying on her to testify at the trial as their chief eyewitness, right? Actually, no. The attack had left Harriet Lowe's face partially paralyzed on one side. Doctors decided to perform surgery to try and repair the damage, and Harriet died from surgery complications two months after the attack. So the Axeman had claimed another victim. Except the police were still blaming it on Louis Bessemer. He was still being charged? Yes, and his case still went to trial. Louis Bessemer served nine months in prison before a verdict was reached in May of 1919. Mr. Foreman, in the matter of People versus Louis Bessemer, on the charge of murder in the first degree, how do you find? We find the defendant not guilty, y'all. It only took the jury 10 minutes of deliberations to acquit. I thank the jury for their service. The defendant is free to go. Clearly, the case wasn't very strong. Indeed. Two lead New Orleans investigators assigned to the case had been demoted due to unacceptable police work. So the case was still open and new detectives were on the job. But the question still remained. If Louis Bessemer wasn't the axe man, who was? And more importantly, could the police stop him? They've never caught me, and they never will. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, let's continue our story. Louis Bessemer had been acquitted in the second Axeman attack. If we could even call it an Axeman attack. At that point, was it even clear that there was a connection between the Maggio and Bessemer crimes? That's a good point. There had only been two attacks, and each had their own separate suspects, Andrew Maggio and Louis Bessemer. But we now know there should have been another suspect, the Axeman. And he was still out there. Waiting for his moment. It's only in retrospect that we can connect the dots. And unfortunately, what sometimes helps connect those dots is another crime. Because the Axeman is ready to strike again. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. On August 5th, 1918, the same day that Harriet Lowe, the presumed wife or actual mistress of Louis Bessemer died from her surgery complications, 
Edward Schneider, returned to his home on Elmira Street. Late in the evening, after an unusually long day at work. Honey, I'm home. Honey? Honey? Oh my God! When he went into the bedroom, he found his pregnant wife covered in blood. Her scalp cut open and several teeth knocked out. Help! Help! I need some help in here! Mrs. Schneider was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Just for the record, this isn't a presumed wife situation. No, this was Edward's actual wife. At the hospital, Mrs. Schneider lay unconscious for two days. Would she live or would she die? Then she awoke. Did she remember anything about the attack? For the most part, no. But Mrs. Schneider told the police that she had been taking a nap when she awoke to find a dark figure looming over her. She saw the glint of an axe coming down, and then everything went black. Always with the axe. Maybe. Authorities think it was possible she was struck with a lamp from a nearby table. But she survived. Not only did she survive, but miraculously, one week later, despite the trauma of the attack, Mrs. Schneider went into labor. One last push, Mrs. Schneider. And gave birth to a perfectly healthy baby. It's a girl. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, the Schneiders had a healthy daughter. But who was responsible for the attack? Get back here! Catch him! Police arrested a man, James Gleason, who they said was an ex-convict after he had attempted to flee from them. It could be suspicious. Then again, if you're an ex-con with a checkered past and the police start chasing you, you might run too. Later, that's exactly how James Gleason explained his behavior. Well, what else tied him to the crime? Nothing that the police could find. As a result, he was released due to lack of evidence. That seems to be a pattern. Exactly. With the first three Axeman attacks, the New Orleans police had made a quick arrest and picked up someone nearby. Andrew Maggio and the Joseph and Catherine Maggio murders, Louis Ubicon and then Louis Bessemer in the Bessemer attack, James Gleason in the Schneider assault, only to watch the case fall apart. Because they weren't focusing on the true culprit, the Axeman. But now that there were three unsolved crimes in a short period of time, investigators were starting to connect the dots. Well, such as people getting attacked with an axe. The Maggios were sliced with a razor before the axe, And Mrs. Schneider might have been struck by a lamp. But yes, the perpetrator had grabbed a weapon that was present at the scene, usually a small, bloody axe. And then there was the method of break-in. With a wood panel chiseled out of the back door or through the back door itself. And there also was the fact that the intruder or intruders who broke in didn't seem to have robbery as a motive. He or she was just there to assault or kill. And the attacks happened at night, when the victims were asleep. When they were defenseless and most vulnerable. So naturally, people are afraid. As they should be. Because someone or something is on the loose. Not something again. It's a valid question. Is the Axeman even human? Yes, he's human. How could he fit through a small wooden panel and still be large enough to take on a man? He's human. And he's out there waiting to attack again. One of the best methods of identifying a serial killer is by looking for a signature at the scene of the crime. A signature is not the way the killer performs their murders, but an added mark or practice outside the act of killing. 
For example, the 1898 Gaton murders involved the corpses being rearranged after the killing so that the legs were crossed over their bodies with the feet facing west. Serial killer Ravindra Control left a beer can beside each victim. The Zodiac Killer marked a mysterious cross inside a circle symbol on each victim. For the Axeman, the signature was not the axe, but the broken door panel and the chisel. The Axeman could have easily broken down entire doors or taken his chisel with him, but he chose to mark the scenes of his crimes. It seems to be a show of power or psychological invasion. So now the people of New Orleans are asking, if I close my eyes, will he appear by my bed? If I go to sleep, will I wake up tomorrow? Sadly, it wouldn't be long to find out. The next attack is less than a week away. And you're not safe. Because no one is safe from the Axeman of New Orleans. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. On the next episode of Unsolved Murders, the Axeman strikes again. The terror intensifies. Fear grips the Big Easy. And the Axeman reaches out to the public with a chilling letter. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer. Which I am. But it could be much worse if I wanted it to. Promising more bloodshed. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. And we will find out how real the threat was. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe. Be smeared with blood and brains of whom I have sent below to keep me company. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or go to our website, parcast.com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, digitally engineered by Ron Shapiro, and written by Stephen DeLello. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson. Hey.